Luke chapter 18. Again, the chapter of the vision is most unfortunate. Uh, for the most part, chapter divisions are, are pretty well. Sometimes they can be adjusted in a verse, uh, uh, two verses or what they call a pericope, a section that should go with the previous or the following one. But for the most part, it is. But this is one of them that would probably be corrected. Um, chapter 18, verse 1 down through 8, uh, is really an illustration of that goes back to chapter 17. If you were with us this morning, we made that point very clear, which really gives us the proper interpretation of the parable of the unjust judge, which often is interpreted in a wrong way. And we'll point that out as as we move along. Um, Chapter 18, Jesus just has finished in 17, and it does connect and continue. He's been talking to his disciples in verse 22 of chapter 17. He's been speaking about his second coming. He's been talking about uh, the judgment to come, the last verse, 37. So the whole entire section from 20 to 37 is his second coming. He is still talking about his second coming, as you can see in verse 8 of chapter 18. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? It's the second coming. So the context of this parable is the truth that Jesus is revealing about believing God is going to vindicate himself of all the evil at his coming at the end of the seven years. That's the context. It does not teach a comparison, meaning that we are to be importunist or persistent in praying so God can answer. That's not the teaching. Because if we do that, then we are comparing God to this unjust judge as we move through it. We'll see it. And God is not unjust. He doesn't have to be pestered or bugged in prayer or convinced to punish evildoers. Alright? So it's just the opposite. And as we pointed out this morning, even in chapter 11, the parable of the friend that comes at midnight asks for bread. That parable is also taught often about being a comparison. And they make God out to be like that man that's reluctant. God's not reluctant to give us. We ask and he gives. So that parable in chapter 11 of Luke also is a contrast. Though that man was his friend and didn't want to give him bread, God will give us what we ask. So parables, again, even to compare or contrast. That's all they do and they have one punchline. that can be a verse or two, sometimes three, but it will be very evident. They give one truth and... That's the whole issue of a parable. And this right here is very, very clear. If you stay on track, that the context of this parable is the second coming. And the faith of those who will be there waiting for his coming, for him to vindicate himself from all the ungodly in the world. Let's move through it. Chapter 18, verse 1 says, Then he spoke a parable um, to them, them, the disciples. Back chapter 17, verse 22, the disciples. He's still speaking to them, okay? That men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Simple principle. The conscious second coming, 
But in principle, it's for every one of us. If we don't pray, we will lose heart or faint. Be dispirited. Discouraged is literally what it says. But if we're not discouraged, if we don't lose heart, if we don't faint, it's because we're praying. We're depending on the Lord. Simple. Then he said, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So we get the very uh, example of a daily scenario of the days there. And this is what parables are. Jesus took them from the daily life. A sower went out to sow seed. Uh, this now, a judge, a woman has a case. She's been uh, defrauded, uh, done a disservice. She is seeking um, some rectification of the wrong done to her. And this judge, he, he doesn't fear God. He doesn't regard man. He doesn't care who you are. Now Herod is an evil ruler. He appoints these guys under his jurisdiction. They rule just like he does. Okay? Many of these guys were rats and they abstracted money from people. They took bribes and they gave favors to people. And they weren't concerned about giving justice to anybody. Um, you know, the United States were always been a rule of law in our constitution and a man is presumed innocent until proven guilty. But our courts have changed in many different ways. If I, if I was guilty today in America, I would have no problem going to court. But if I'm innocent, I'm nervous. Because the color of justice is green. More today than ever before. I'm not saying justice is not done at times. But our system is broken down. And our judges and our lawyers and the legal institutions have no legal moral standard per se. It's almost like a chess game. Who's the best chess player? Who's going to win? Who has the most money? And so if your, your confidence is in the justice of man, God help you. If God judges you, you don't have to worry about him making a mistake. If you fall upon Christ and you ask him as your savior, then you will be justified in Christ Jesus. If you feel that you are sufficient to stand before the judgment of God, God help you. You will be crushed. He cannot make a mistake. And so here this judge um, is presented to us, his character, godless, doesn't fear God. And if you don't fear God, you're certainly not going to care about man. Now, there was a widow in the, that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. The word justice there means vindicate me. Do what is right for me. I've been, I've been done wrong. You're the judge. And from my adversary, this is a legal term of the one who is the accused in a legal court case. So she comes before him and she came repeatedly by the Greek tense and he would not for a while. So he didn't care. He's in a position of power. He can do as he wishes. No one's going to question him. No one's going to care. He's there for his own good. But something happened in the process of time as this woman continued to come and plead her case before him. He says, but afterwards, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man. 
Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So he took the stance that he was not going to care for this woman's legal issues. It doesn't matter to me. But this woman, by her continual coming and presenting herself before him and pleading her case, kind of got to him. Maybe it was just an embarrassment to him. People started to take notice. Maybe he just got on his nerves so much so. Now remember, he doesn't fear God and he doesn't care about man. So this woman must have just been there night and day. <laughs> Whatever was going on here, we're not giving all the details. But he makes a decision. He considers after making the decision to not do service for her injustice. He says, you know, maybe I better do the other thing. He only had one other option. And so he spoke to himself silently. You and I, as I said this morning, have done this when we consider something. Oh, man, I just, you know. And as I told you, sometimes it's right to talk to yourself to reconsider if you've made the right decision. But to talk to yourself is never a good thing. You're your worst advisor. Because you always give yourself the wrong counsel. What's not good for you. Because you're more lenient with yourself than anybody else. <laughs> That's the way we are. You see, my sin on you looks ugly. On me, I have a reason why I did it. That's the way we are. And so it's always good to go to the Word and to go to God. And to go to godly people. To give us counsel. So that they can see clearer at times from the position we're at. But this man, he says he hasn't changed his mind. He still doesn't fear God. He doesn't have regard for man. But because of the conduct of this woman, he, um, he decides to vindicate her. Then the Lord said, here's the application. Remember parable. Has one central message. Has a key verse, a punchline. The Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Not the, what the woman said. Not the many times she said. But what the judge said. He said he would vindicate her. And then Jesus says, here it is, the punchline. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bear long with them? It's a rhetorical question. It has only one answer. Yes. If the judge vindicate her, so will God vindicate. This guy's unjust. God is just. This guy's unrighteous. God is righteous. This guy's unholy. God is holy. This guy needed to be pressed. God does not. The parable is a contrast, not a comparison. If you make this parable to teach that we are to be persistent in prayer and bug God, then you're making him like the judge. I don't think that's what the scripture is teaching. You don't have to remind God to punish evildoers. Whether you pray and ask God to do that or not, He's going to do it because He's holy. So it's a 
contrast here. Verse 8, he says, I tell you, Jesus' authority, that he will avenge them speedily, suddenly. What's the context? The second coming. Listen. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he readily, really find faith on the earth? That's the end of the seven years. So those who are present in the last half of the tribulation are to be having confidence in a righteous God who will vindicate all the evil. They're to have this confident faith. But here he says, when he comes, will he find that faith? And the article is there, the faith. What type of faith? The faith that this woman displayed, what? Faith that God will vindicate, right? Many will be saved during the tribulation and great tribulation. But Jesus says when he returns, though there will be many that will be saved, not many will be having this confident faith that God will vindicate at the end. Now Jesus is speaking prophetically here about that period. Now, we can apply the principle to our prayer life that God will vindicate. And that I should pray that I not faint. But the context he's applying it to those that are going to be living that distressful, perplexing day. When evil will run to its full gamut under the hand of the Antichrist. Such times, Jesus said, that has never been or ever will be. Now you stop and think about that. Now, you think about um, the Great War, World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam. Desert Storm. Iraq, Afghanistan, back again. The Civil War. Horrible. The number of people that died in those wars, you would be blown away. This period is going to be worse than any of those. When God removes His church and the Antichrist appears, and he deceives the world for three and a half years. Then he rules as a demon for the last three and a half years. You cannot buy, you cannot sell, you cannot do anything unless you take the mark of the beast. Those saved during that time, that would be a real difficult time. Jesus said it would be better that you die than to live in those days. And so, I hope you're planning on going on the rapture. I hope you're not straddling the fence. I hope you're not playing games with God. The parable teaches a contrast. The parable does not teach that we have to persist in praying to God for Him to avenge the evil. In fact, it's teaching just the opposite. You don't have to pray really about that. You just have to be confident in that faith that He will. Because He's holy. And so your prayer of confidence and faith in God doing this causes you not to faint, not to be discouraged. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, I have cleansed my hands in vain. I look at the rich, they're well, their calves never have miscarriages, they're wealthy and they're healthy. And you know, 
And then he says, until I went to the sanctuary of God, verse 17, then I understood therein. They're walking on slippery poles over hell. Perspective and prayer. Because sometimes we can become envious of the evil and the wicked and say, look at them. They, they flourish. I'm living for God. And, and look what's happening to me. Well, what did they do to your Lord? Do you expect to be treated better than Jesus? That's an American concept of the church. In Christianity. That doesn't exist the rest of the world and the rest of the history. The church has always suffered. Except in America. But we are seeing the times changing very, very quickly. And so, this is the biblical accurate interpretation. It's a contrast. Much like the one in chapter 11 of the man who asked for bread at midnight. Now, verse 9 to 14, you have the parable of the um, um, Pharisee here and the tax collector, another one dealing with prayer. Verse 9 gives us the purpose. Also, he spoke a parable um, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So, remember a parable again uh, has a, a punchline and we'll see this again here. It'll either compare or contrast, okay? Um, the contrast is going to be here between the proud and the humble, between the Pharisee and the tax collector, the one who is self-righteous and the one who finds and depends on the righteousness of God he provides. So, uh, complete contrast here. And remember a parable, uh, the word paraboli, para means alongside and boli, a ball to throw. So it's taking something you do know, putting it next to what you don't know, and then knowing what you did know, you'll know what you didn't know. Okay? That's what a parable is. Okay? So here now he shows you a perfect picture of these guys praying, and they can see it, they understood it, and then he makes the contrast. And we've seen it in the one before here. And so here they are, the self-righteous one, two men went up, to the temple to pray, and that is the precinct of the court of the of the Jews, the Gentiles, uh, that area. Uh, one of Pharisee, a synonymous with hypocrisy in the in the Gospels. The other, a tax collector. This tax collector was the epitome of of, of disgust and of hatred by the Jew, because um, here is a Jew who has sold himself out to be a servant of Rome, to extract taxes, to rob the Jews. And, uh, and he was literally an enemy of the Jews. And um, they're both going to uh, the temple. The Pharisees stood in um, verse 11. Um, he stood, prayed with, uh, thus with himself. And so the first thing we notice is that this Pharisee, um, he's really not praying to God. Now, this is Jesus speaking. You look at somebody praying, you say, that tired sucker, he's just such a... But you don't know their heart. Jesus, when he gives his commentary, he sees the heart of this man. You understand? So there's no doubt of what's going on here. This is Jesus speaking. He stood praying thus with himself, God. I thank you that I'm not like other men. He thought of himself very highly here. He exalts himself. He considers himself better than others. 
And then he enumerates some things. An extortioner, a robber, a thief, unjust, unrighteous. Adulterers, sexually unfaithful to wives or husbands. Or even as pointing to this tax collector probably. He's standing to be seen. Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount. He's standing in corners to be seen of men. He says, go pray, pray in your closet. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Even though you're giving or you're praying. These guys love the attention of people. Now, they're, they're still around in the church. There are people who are always wanting to have the attention, to let you know how much they've done for God, how much money they've given, how much they've served, and what they've done, and how God has opened doors, and blah, 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 blah. And they just toot their own horn. Um, some things never change. As you're going to see here, God doesn't look too favorably on this man. So here he's exalting himself. And, and then in verse 12, um, he proclaims his good deeds that he does. First he tells what he isn't. Now he tells what he does. I fast twice a week. Usually they were market days on Monday and Thursday so they can walk through the marketplace with their face all whited. They put white on them, all sad and somber, so the people they were so righteous in self-denial. Jesus says, you have your reward. Yet at the same time as they walked through the marketplace, they scooped up their garments lest some sinners would touch them and defile them. <laughs> Exalting themselves and looking down upon others. A fast twice a week. The law only required one fast in the Day of Atonement. So here he's declaring that he goes beyond what the law required. Boasting. He says, I give tithes of all that I possess. Again, going beyond what the law said in Numbers 18.21, Deuteronomy 14.22. Of everything they gave a tithe. Remember Jesus said, of the smallest of spices coming and annas, you say one for me, one, one for the Lord, nine for me. And, you, and he says, you hypocrite. <laughs> you strain at a gnat. You're running down the street and your mouth open and you're trying to get there and a gnat goes right down the tube. And you're there trying to hack that thing up. Because you don't want to have any unclean bees that hasn't been bled down your throat. So you strain at the gnat and then he says, and you swallow a camel. This huge unclean thing. Because you go through this meticulous thing to show you that you're so righteous. And you admit the weightier matters of the law. Wow. And so Pharisees were exposed by Jesus all the time. They were always in conflict with Jesus. Because he called them hypocrites, actors. You get the word hypocritos from the um, frown and the smile of the uh, theater, the two masks. A person would put that mask over their face and they would not deceive them. They knew they were portraying to be someone else, but they didn't believe they were that person. But that's where the word comes from. And then in verse 13 comes next now the tax collector. 
And the tax collector standing afar off, he, he is down far away, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Probably in the court of the Gentiles, maybe. But certainly not somewhere to be seen. He's a tax collector. This man is very aware of his sin. Take note that Jesus is the one that is describing this scenario. This man knew he was despised. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes, notice, to heaven. This man is broken. Ashamed before God. This man beat his breast due to his guilt before God. His regret. Now, all of these things can take place as an emotional release by a person and it not be genuine. So be careful that tears do not equate genuine repentance. Esau sought repentance with tears, but it was too late. Regret is regret of the consequences. It's heavy what's come upon you because of your actions. Repentance is not regret of the consequences. It's regret of the sin against God. And you turn from it. And you don't repeat it again. Regret, you will have tears. Emotional turmoil. But after a while, it'll go away. And you'll do it all over again. You're back to it. Once you work through the consequences, there's a big difference. He cried out to God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The word merciful means be propitious to me or propitiate me. It's a word of sacrifice demonstrating genuine repentance. The blood of that sacrifice to cover his sin. Prophetic of the fulfillment in Christ to forgive that sin. The Messiah to come. So you see a person who is really there to showboat himself and the other one to humble himself. One to see himself as being really, not really sinful. The other one being disgusted over his sin. Jesus Responds in 14. Gives the punchline of the parable. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. This man is a tax collector. The one who people hate and were disgusted with. He had genuine repentance in his heart. Be also careful that you don't think that the church and the gospel is for good people. Because if you do, when you find a good person, bring them to me. And I'll show you they're not that good. <laughs> the gospel is for dirty, rotten sinners. Like you. Like me. No one can boast. No one can say... I deserve salvation more than you. 
And then you fill in your line. Because I never committed. Okay, maybe you didn't commit. But you did commit. No one can boast, ladies and gentlemen. It's a humbling of all of us. That we get in by the grace of God. When we recognize that our sin is first against God. Then against man or with man. And that only the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse us from all sin. And give us a new heart. Make us whiter than snow. And give us joy in our heart. That is forevermore. So that when you walk away, you will forever be engraved in your heart and your mind that you are going to go to heaven while you really deserve hell. And it's all by the grace of God. Kind of keeps you humble. (laughs) But you lose perspective of that for one thousandth of a second. You will look at another person and say, that guy. That's the way we are. We're sinners. And so here again, be merciful to me. The punchline in 14. That one went down justified just as he had never had sinned. Romans 5, 1 and 2. The other tried to justify himself by his goodness, by his deeds. He'd never make it. For everyone, here's the principle, who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. Nobody's going to walk into heaven proud and arrogant. Going like this. Everybody's going to walk in very humble, looking to Jesus, the one who did it all. And so the punchline, the parable demonstrates the contrast, right? In 15 down to 17, we have the bringing of children to Jesus. This is recorded. The, um, the earlier parables are unique of, uh, of Luke. This now you find in Matthew 19, 13 through 15 and Mark 10, 13 through 16. And in verse 15 says, Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Interesting. The forbidding of the children by the disciples, those who are being trained to take the church. Now remember, at this point, they're looking to, to be served. They're, they're not ready to serve. They, they think they're going to Jerusalem uh, to set up the kingdom. It's not till after the resurrection that they understand all this. Um, and so they re, um they rebuke these adults who are bringing the kids um, to Jesus. And these are infants, by the way, um, not grown children or that. And it was a Jewish custom to bring children to the rabbis. They lay hands on them and they 
pray a blessing over them. Um, uh, sometimes uh, um, assistant pastors or people in ministry that um, sometimes idolize a pastor or they exalt the pastor more than they should. They kind of build a wall for the pastor and they protect him from all the people. And, you know, and oh, no, you can't see him. You know, he's not too busy. He doesn't have time. You know, and they, they forget that, listen, the shepherd is supposed to be the greatest example of, of being able available to people. Now, I understand if you've got a huge church, not everybody can speak to the pastor. But that pastor should be approachable, should be around the people all the time. Okay. If, if not, go find a church where, where, where you can get a real person, okay? Um, I hate recorders. I tell the staff on Sunday, that recorder better not come on. There better be someone live on there. You ever try to call a church on Sunday morning? Get a recording? Shame on them. If they're so big that they can't answer phones, they're too big. Or should I say too big for their own head? You have that many people. Put a few of them on the phone. Simple. Now, here's the contrast. But Jesus called them to him and said, the disciples. Because they rebuked those coming in. They censured them. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Jesus demonstrated that the children are a beautiful picture of those who enter the kingdom. That's who the kingdom belongs to. Children are very um, trustworthy, very innocent, even though they're little rotten sinners because they're our children. But they haven't yet sprouted their horns. So they're innocent. They're trustworthy. They're depending on you. They believe anything you tell them. You tell your son when he's one and a half years old, oh yeah, daddy can jump over the roof and, not, and clear it. I don't, my feet wouldn't even touch it. I go, oh yeah, and you'll go tell his friends. And so the example is going to be, this is the attitude that we're to have about the things of God and of God. That we're to trust and we're to believe in Him. And here it is, Here's, these are the ones that enter the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter the kingdom of God. So those who are haughty, once again, those who think they have it all together, those who do not trust and believe God and His Word, then they, they are not like little children, right? He doesn't tell us to be gullible. He doesn't tell us to believe things that are unscriptural. He tells us to believe God who cannot lie and His Word that there's no errors in it. When He tells about the things of God, the things of man, sin, prophecy, last times, and whatever else he deals with. That we can just read this stuff and accept this stuff without ever saying, hmm, maybe it's not true. <laughs> A great picture. Now, in verse 18 down to 30, we have the rich young ruler approaching Jesus. And maybe... He's talking about entering the kingdom. And all of a sudden, perhaps he was watching on and hearing this conversation. And um, this is also found in Matthew 19, 16 through 30 and in Mark 10, 17 through 31. And there's uh, some differences, not much uh, in that. We'll pick some of them up. But in verse 18, it says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit uh, eternal life. So a certain young ruler, maybe a ruler of the synagogue, we're not sure. 
But he addresses Jesus as good teacher, which really was not the usual way of address for a rabbi or a teacher. Um, he wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. He had everything. He was seeking a quality of life that money could not buy. He had everything, but he wasn't certain about eternal life. And somehow, he just concluded that maybe he can do certain things to obtain this. Many people think that. Many churches teach that. Certainly religion teaches that. I, as I grew up as a Catholic, and you know the whole aspect of uh, indulgences that you can give money to the church or the priest for past sins and, and for family members to get them out of limbo or purgatory or whatever. It's just, you know, money. It's just a, an incredible thing that, um, that has done a disservice to people through the Catholic Church. But don't leave out the Protestants also. There's a lot of shysters who who play on the emotions of people through the radio, through the television, telling you sad stories, tell you about their vision and their ministry and how you can be a partner and, you know, and they suggest the amount you can give every week, every month, and, you know, we'll send you a picture of the pastor, you know, and all kinds of stuff. And God help these people that merchandise the people of God. I am not against tithing. You giving to God what belongs to God as God leads you. That is biblical. And we believe in that and we practice that. And we take one offering a week on Sunday morning. We don't take another one Sunday night. We don't take one in midweek. We don't take no special offerings. We believe that God will provide our need if we take one offering a week as the Bible teaches in Corinthians and we make our needs known to God, and we're good administrators and servants of what God gives, and we believe that God will give all that is necessary for the things He wants done, and we never have to pressure you, never have to spank you, never have to, you know, play a big emotional trip on you. We can just enjoy the Lord and one another, and both all of us just say, isn't the Lord good what He has done? And such has been the case since 1980. I don't plan on changing the philosophy of ministry here. <laughs> we have no complaints on the greatness of God regarding this people. And I commend you for your obedience and your love for the Lord as you come and as you give of yourself of the Lord and you're used of God. And really, what a contrast that is to some people that think they can buy their way to heaven by what they do or even money-wise. Jesus responds to the rich young ruler. He says to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. So in other words, either Jesus is saying, You're saying I'm no good, or you're saying I'm God. Which is it? <laughs> I think he was saying he was God. <laughs> there was something different about Jesus. Real simple. So Jesus says, you know the commandments. He's responding to what must I do. Now, Jesus knows he can't do anything to earn eternal life, but he's going 
He's going to test them here. You know what the commandments, the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. He's dealing with the second tablet of the law of man's relationship to man, not the first man's relationship to God. And he doesn't mention all of them here. But enough of them to know that this is uh, this guy, uh, as he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. He's a moralist. He's kept all these things. He hasn't committed them. But again, the most important thing is not so much as the actual thing, but your heart. Your attitude. Even as Jesus said, if you commit, if, if you lust after a woman, you commit adultery in your heart already. So it doesn't matter, I mean all the time that I, I, you know, I can say I never murdered anybody, but Jesus says, how about your heart? Now let's make a distinction. I would rather murder someone in my heart than actually murder them, okay? In my heart, there's only consequence between me and God. If I murder literally, I'm in bad trouble down here, okay? People say, well, you know, if, if, if you just lust after a woman, you commit adultery. So what's the difference if I commit literal adultery against my wife and my husband? Are you kidding me? Let me ask you a question. Would you rather I lust after your wife or have sex with your wife? Let's not play games. The one, I'm in trouble with God. The other one, I'm in trouble with God and man. And there are consequences here on earth before I get to heaven. Are we clear on that? Otherwise, we're playing games with Christianity. Now, this guy, he never did anything outwardly, but you know that he failed in heart. Because you and I fail in heart. We're sinners. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And so when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come and follow me. Jesus didn't call him a liar. So he put his finger on his idol, his God, his money. I am sure that if he would have said, okay, Jesus would have said, don't worry about it. God doesn't want your money. He doesn't need your money. God wants you. The minute you're saved, you're 30 or 40% ahead financially. The next day, next weekend, you're not getting loaded. You're not getting drunk. You're not smashing your car. You're not smashing somebody's face or your face by somebody else. You're not getting out of jail. You're not wasting your money. You're not buying things that are dumb. Right away, being a Christian... Thinking properly, you're financially ahead. You make better decisions. And so this is a test for this young man. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money. First Timothy 6, 9 through 10, the people pierce themselves with many sorrows. Uh, money, um, money opens many bad doors if you're not walking with God. Um, money um, opens doors that uh, uh, people love to show you. Uh, money brings more problems than solves, solves them. So you have to make sure that whatever you do with money, that it glorifies the Lord. 
and that you're not living for. It's the love of money, not the money itself. He was a slave to money here, a form of idolatry. Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sorrowful. Why? Because he was very rich. Couldn't let go of it. Jesus nailed him. The first table of the law, Jesus didn't give. He gave it to him this way. Should I have no other gods before me? Make no graven images. Not take the Lord's in vain. Okay? So on and so forth. Here it is. Oh, I'm good with man. But you're not good with God. His problem was he wasn't right with God. That's where eternal life comes from. Not from being right with man. Doing good things to man. But the vertical. Verse 24 and 5, the response of Jesus about the rich ruler. He says that when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not impossible, but how difficult. Because, not of God, but because of man, his love for money. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this illustration Jesus gives is a literal illustration. Many people in the 4th century started giving the interpretation that it's a, it's a small door within the big door of the gate and that a camel would have to get on his knees. They have to take all the pack off and push it through. No, that's foreign to the context. Luke is a surgeon. This word for needle here is a literal surgical needle it appears in Matthew 19:14 Mark 10:25 and here so in other words it is easier for a camel as big as he is to go through the eye of a sewing needle a surgical needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God the impossibility is the reluctance of man not that God can't forgive him the impossibility is Due to man's reluctance, not God's. It's a literal application here. Jesus gives it. And those who heard it, here's the response of the disciples. Who then can be saved? But he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. There it is. When there's genuine repentance, brokenness, then salvation is possible. Then Peter said, see, we have left all and follow you. So he said to them, surely I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wives or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. And so here again, the disciples have been almost three and a half years, and all of a sudden they hear this and they freak out. Jesus says, listen, God is no debtor to anyone. No matter how much you leave, you have left nothing in comparison to what you're gaining. And God will reward those who come to God in faith, who live for God, who suffer for God. But we're not living for the reward. That's God's department. He takes care of it. And so he kind of sets his disciples straight here. And even now as you come to the Lord, stop and think what a small world that you and I lived in. When we were in the world, the small clique, the people we hung around with, they're just like us. And then you came to the Lord 
And your world has become so much larger. You have so many more real friends that care for you. You have so many more close relationships, meaningful relationships. You experience life on a higher level. You have greater peace, joy. That is not to say that we don't have difficulties. We live in this world, but we deal with them with the Lord. Through the word, the power of the spirit of God. By praying for one another. By, by helping one another. We're a family. Verse 31 to 34. You have the third prediction of Jesus' death and resurrection. Again, Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And Mark 10, 32 through 34. Um, is the cross reference. Then he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we are going to Jerusalem. Now remember, here's the, this is the, a line of demarcation. This kind of begins the last passage for the end of the ministry of Jesus. He's been coming down from Galilee, um, down through um, uh, Perea, then uh, Galil- uh, the um, Samaria, and then through down. Now he's coming. He's going to go down through Jericho up. But he's going to Jerusalem, and uh, the disciples think that he's going to set up the kingdom. And he took him aside, going up um, as they were going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now he's been saying this over and over again. He said it the first time in chapter nine, verse twenty-two. Then in nine forty-four and forty-five, uh, it's implied in five thirty-five, twelve fifty, thirteen thirty-two, seventeen twenty-five, over and over and over. But they never hear it. Because in their Jewish mind, they think he's going to set up the kingdom and they're going to rule. They are not servants at this point. They want to be served. That's why the two asked Jesus for the right and the left hand, James and John, right? And when the other ten found out about the two, they were ticked at the two because the two beat the ten to a thing they wanted to do also. All of them were not servants. Verse 32 says, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles that will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Jesus never mentions his death without his resurrection from the confession of Caesarea Philippi. But they did not hear it. Their mind had a complete different plan for Jesus. In 34, he says, but they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. So their theology was wrong, and at this point, they didn't have the full understanding, a combination of both. But Jesus nevertheless kept proclaiming it. Verse 35 down to 43, now we have Jesus healing the two blind men at Jericho. Uh, Matthew twenty twenty nine through thirty four and Mark ten forty six through fifty two, um, verse thirty five says. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain man, a blind man, sat by the road begging. Matthew says there were two blind men and declares it occurred when they were going out of Jericho. Mark says. The man's name was Bartimaeus, and also when they were leaving Jericho. Luke says here, it was when they were coming near Jericho. Many find a contradiction, but again, when you find many of these things, 
They are often cleared up as you search the scripture and compare them. At other times, God gets archaeologists to go dig up something that clarifies the scripture. And such is the case here. We know that now there were two Jerichos. There was um, the old Jericho and the New Testament Jericho that um, by Herod that he built. And um, so here, the first old Jericho, the second one, Herod, that built. So the one event is as they're going in, the other one is they're leaving the old one and entering the new one. And the explanation is there. But let's just say we had no evidence and we didn't know. I don't have any problem with it. If Jesus said it, it's absolutely true. He cannot lie. If what I do understand is absolute truth, why would I allow one or two or three things that I don't understand completely to, to bring any doubt to what I know is absolutely true? It would be insane as a Christian. Now, verse 36. Notice, then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road Begging. And of course you're blind and some of you were in Israel with us and people that have, they're blind, they're lame, they're there begging at the gate called beautiful, different, you know, at the gate of Damascus many times they're there. And he says, and hearing the multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. And so they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a title of a Messiah. Messianic title. This man's a Jew. This man knows. He knows the scripture. He's blind. He can't see. He's depending on these people. And then those who went before him warned him that he should be quiet. Shut up. But he cried out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. I would say so. Here's his one chance. He's heard about Jesus healing the lepers. Healing other blind people. He's not going to pass up this chance. Jesus is walking through. He's going to make all the ruckus he can. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near him, he asked him. You see, Jesus never refused anybody. Jesus never ignored anybody. Jesus was among the people. He ministered to the people. It's so easy to become withdrawn after a while. Well, I've been in the Lord 25 years. Now it's time for me to kick back. And that. What? The older you are, the more dangerous you are to Satan. When you first come to the Lord, you're a little derringer, a pea shooter. Now you're this big... Gone. And you're going to go kick back? The older you get, the more God should be using you. You should be pouring your life into the younger. And to others. People often ask me, when are you going to retire? I said, when God kills me. Where am I retire from? Well, things change. They may change, slow down different things. But where am I going to retire from? Seeing people get saved and forgiven? That'd be a crime. (laughs) Now, you're in a job, you retire, good for you. But you don't retire from the Lord. 
he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me receive my sight. Oh. Now you gotta understand. Sight is so precious. I came to the Lord because I lost my right eye. This is not a real eye. This is a phony eye, my right one. As you know, me and my brother used to earn our living teaching Kung Fu. We were doing a demonstration in the studio over here in Beverly, uh, in L.A., and the stick broke and it punctured my eye. It deflated in my hand. And I had no pain. I asked the Lord to save me, and I used to have two eyes, and I was blind, and then God took one, and I could see. And try as you may. I close this eye. I can't see anything. Sight is so precious. I can imagine if you lose the other one. Now, you never know what's going to happen in my life. When I, all the wear and tear and you have macro degeneration or whatever may happen, glaucoma, possibly I could go blind before our Lord takes me home. But, Having lost one eye, I can only imagine being completely blind. The request, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Apparently, this man lost his sight after he had it. We're not told that he was born like this. And then Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well, Jesus says his trust and confidence in God was the source of his healing. At other times, Jesus says that it was the faith of others. At other times, Jesus just healed sovereignly in spite of what people thought. We don't always know. But we're always to come in faith, believing that God is able. So we are to lay hands on one another, anoint with oil, and pray that God would heal you, the book of James. And we do that once a month as a body, and hopefully you do it. My grandkids all have their little bottle of oil. I have one in my pocket all the time. And um, this little bottle of oil, they have theirs, and they get sick. They, Grandpa, let me anoint you. And they pray, and they anoint each other. They pray. First thing they do when they're sick. I don't refuse doctors if I have to go to one, but I first go to the Lord. God is sovereign. And he says immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He didn't say like that, well, let me go bury my father first. Let me... He didn't say, well, you know, I, I got a, a ranch down here. I have to go sell first. You know, he, he, he was blind. He, he had nothing. He, he just follows the Lord. Can you imagine the first thing you see when the Lord heals you is his face? This is the picture of what's going to happen to you and me if the Lord tarries. When you give up your last breath, the first thing you're going to see is Jesus Christ. <laughs> Face to face. Amazing. Faith is not mind power. It's believing God for what he says and believing that he knows best. Why does God heal some and not others? God is sovereign.
Why did God not give me my sight? Why did he not allow my eye to be able to be repaired? Because he's wiser. And he's sovereign. I have no problem with that. He's on the throne. Not I. And so may we rest in the wisdom and the sovereignty of God. And know that he loves us so much. And whenever you doubt the love of God for you, I want you to look to the cross. And I want you to see his arms stretched out. That's how much he loves you. Then and now. When things don't look right. When things look like God's not for you. When you think that you've gotten a raw deal. You must get your eyes back on the cross. That stabilizes you. You ever been out fishing or on a boat? You start getting a little weary? Whoa, you're looking for that land. Focus because your cheeks start watering and start getting that weird little feeling. You focus on that one thing and you look on it and it stabilizes you. The cross will do that. You get your eyes on the cross. You'll be okay. And you realize how fortunate you are. He took your place. Lord, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Thank you for tonight, Lord, and your word. And Lord, we just thank you for your grace over our life. Lord, I thank you for every person here and your goodness to them. How merciful you've been, Lord, for them, myself. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to trust you and look to you. And that you just worship you, Lord. That you might use us to reach the lives of many who are so lost in this community. Help us to begin praying for our friends and those that live in the area. That your spirit might be poured out. That you would draw them into yourself, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved. God alone can forgive you of your sin as he crucified his son to pay that price. And if you believe that he did that, then you believe that you're a sinner and that he alone can cleanse you from all sin. And only he can justify you before the throne of grace. It's called repentance, as we've seen through the study. And it's possible you come to church all the time, but you haven't been born again. It's possible that you keep coming, but you're still messing with sin. You need to get right. Maybe you're over the internet. If you want to be forgiven and be born again, and you agree that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, then this is your prayer to Him. And He will forgive you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.